Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, open your Bibles to Psalm 19. And if you're there, if you don't have a Christian Standard Bible and you'd like to use one of those, they're in the pew in front of you. Uh, it's a black Bible there. If someone is using a pew Bible, can you shout out the page number for me? And I can tell everyone else here. 480. Okay. So page 480 in the black pew Bible. If you don't have your own Bible, you're welcome to use that one. 19 is the big number. That's the psalm number. And then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. I'm going to read the whole psalm, though we're only going to focus on the second half of the psalm. Hear then the word of God from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day they pour out speech. Night after night they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to their other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord, and that's the Lord Yahweh. The instruction of the Lord Yahweh is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of Yahweh is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of Yahweh are right, making the heart glad. The command of Yahweh is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of Yahweh is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of Yahweh are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold, and sweeter than honey, dripping from a honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them there is abundant, an abundant reward. Who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Moreover, keep your servant from willful sins. Do not let them rule me. Then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Father, that is our prayer. That my words and all of our thoughts, the meditation of all of our hearts, we pray that it would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Cleanse us from hidden faults. Make us aware of unintentional sins. Moreover, keep us from willful sins that we are aware of. Don't let them rule over us. Deliver us from the evil one and lead us not into temptation. Instead, Father, may your name be honored as holy. And may your kingdom come in and may your will be done on earth, in our hearts, in our lives, in our church, as it's done in heaven. So we pray now that as you speak to us, that you would incline our hearts to your testimony and not to material gain. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you could have an all-access, so I I don't know if you know this, but we're now in the second half of 2018. July begins the second half of 2018. And so if you can have an all-access, all-you-can-eat without any cost ticket or voucher for the next six months, for the, next, for the second half of the year, to your five favorite restaurants, which would you choose? You know what I would choose? Some of you know what I would choose. Chick-fil-A, <laughs> because they have Christian chicken. Chipotle, uh, Mod Pizza, I have to have pizza in there, right, Barbara? 
Um, El Pollo Loco, only because they have the best churros. You're like, man, PJ's list is horrible. Um, ham bones, got to have some barbecue in there, and the nest. I try to choose local here. Now, if I gave you an option, so I don't know, you'd choose better restaurants probably. We'd, we could argue about that after. But if I gave you an option between reading God's word for the second half of 2018 regularly every day and remembering all that you were taught and the truth you've learned and you have access to the Bible all the time on your phone and a hard copy, if you could have that or you get that voucher to all your favorite restaurants and $10 million. You just can't read the Bible or have any access to the Bible for six months. Which would you choose? What would the psalmist choose? Look at Psalm 19, verse 10. He's talking about God's word, and he says, they are more what? They are more what? Desirable than gold, than money, millions of dollars. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold. Not only that, they're also what? Sweeter than honey dripping from a honeycomb. An abundance of money, the best food. What's more desirable to David, the psalmist? God's word. Now, why would he choose that? Why does he say that? I mean, it's the right thing to say, but does he mean that, like, really from his heart? Does he really mean that? More importantly for us, how do we shape our hearts and our desires so that we truly desire God's word in comparison to... um, or more than food, or money, or socializing, or entertainment, and the things we actually do spend our time on. How does it change here in the desire? We know something's wrong with our values, right? We know something's off in our heart when we ask questions like this. I do. Um, we know that something's wrong based on our small desire for God's word in comparison to David's desire, at least here in Psalm 19, verse 10. And we will point out David's faults in a second here. But how do we get help? How do we get our hearts in this this direction? David wasn't always the most spiritual person. But here he was able to truly desire God's word in a way that led him to feast on it and walk its paths. So how do we get there? Here's the main goal. The main goal this morning is grasp what God's word is, what God's word does, and how it changes your prayers. Grasp what God's word is, what God's word does, and how it changes your prayers so that you desire God's word more than money and more than food. If you're going to desire God's word more than money, more than food, you need to grasp what it is, what it does, and how it changes your prayers. So let's look at those one at a time. First of all, desire God's word for what it is. That's point number one. Desire God's word for what it is. What is God's word? Again, we're focusing on verses 7 to 14. So go back to Psalm 19, verse 7, and look with me. It says this, The instruction of the Lord is perfect. So what is the word of God? So here in Psalm 19, verses 7 through um, seven through 9, we have six, six um, definitions or six identities of the word of God. What is the word of God called in verse 7, the first part? It's called the what? Well, not what it is, but what it's called first. The instruction of the Lord. You know what's another word for that? The Torah of Yahweh. 
When you think of Torah, what do you think of? The five books of? The Pentateuch, right? The, the, five books, the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, yes. You think of, of uh, it usually refers to the instruction of Moses, the law covenant of Moses, which would cover, if you think about Genesis through Deuteronomy, what does that cover? Creation, fall, the curse for sin, the reversal of the curse in the blessing of Abraham, promised to Abraham and his descendants, Israel in Egypt in slavery, them redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, and then receiving the law covenant, a covenant relationship with God as a nation. And then after that, they build the tabernacle, they set up a priesthood, they wander through the wilderness, and they get to the very edge of the promised land to renew the covenant one more time. That's the law covenant of Moses, or the, the, the instruction of Moses. But it says here, not the instruction of Moses, which that could refer to, but it says the instruction of who? Of the Lord or of Yahweh. And so one commentator said, law here is the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. Not just the first five books of Moses, but really God's word. And so all of scripture up to, up to David's point of life here. So you have, you have God's word identified as God's instruction. Secondly, in verse 7, it's also called the testimony of Yahweh. You see that in verse 7? The testimony. Now, what is a testimony? When someone says, I'm giving my testimony, what are they telling you? Their story their perspective, their opinion, their viewpoint, right? It's their, it's, so the testimony is personal to a, a particular person. And so the Bible is whose testimony? It's the Lord's testimony. This is God's word. This is God's opinion, if you like, God's perspective. It's weird to say God's perspective because it's, he hasn't, it's not limited in any sense. But this is God's viewpoint of things. You want to know what God thinks? You don't know what he feels? You want to know what he says? This is his personal testimony, okay? So the commentator says here, testimony is its aspect as truth attested, attested by God himself. It's used for his own personal covenant declaration. Third here, you have in verse 8, another description of the word. It's called the precepts of the Lord. What are precepts of Yahweh? Precepts are directives, doctrines, principles, Go go on in verse 8. It's also called the command of the Lord. And I want to spend more time on this, and we'll come back to this. But what's a command? It's a directive. It's something you need to do, right? When God commands you to do something, you are now obligated to do it. The Bible has commands in it. Derek Kidner says, The precepts and commandment indicate the precision and authority with which God addresses us. You must do it. You must obey it. Now, here's a weird, uh, a, a weird one or one that we're not used to thinking of with Scripture. I always stumble over this one in verse 9. The Bible is, or the Word of God is called the fear of the Lord. That's weird. And so, um, I'm gonna, what, what, what I've learned from it just in reading commentaries on it is it's really our response to God's Word. The fear of the Lord or the, the directives of the righteous response to God's Word, which is what worship is. The directions of worship are pure enduring forever. So Derek Kidner again writes, fear or reverence emphasizes the human response fostered by God's word. So you got instruction of the Lord, testimony of the Lord, his personal testimony, precepts of the Lord, his principles, the command of the Lord, they're obligatory, the fear of the Lord, talking about our response to God's word. And then lastly here in verse nine, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable. The ordinance of Yahweh, what's the ordinance? The, the order, practices, policies, customs, Habits that God calls humans and his people to observe. They're the judicial decisions 
that God has recorded. Again, Derek Kidner writes, together these terms show the practical purpose of revelation, to bring God's will to bear on the hearer and evoke intelligent reverence, well-founded trust, and, I like this, detailed obedience. Detailed obedience. So that's what God's word is called, but how is God's word described? Now, Lance said this earlier, but let's go back to verse 7. The instruction of, the, of Yahweh is what? Say it, is what? Perfect. What does it mean that, that God's word is perfect, that the instruction of Yahweh is perfect? It means here that it's whole, it's complete. If it's missing something, it's imperfect, but it's not missing anything. It's perfect. Even during David's time, you might say, well, did David have the whole Bible yet? Did he have the New Testament? No. Did he have the prophets? No. How could David say it's complete? Well, it was complete for his time, that God's word is always exactly what God wants to say to his people at any given moment in history. God never leaves his people short of what he wants to tell them. God's word is perfect. It was perfect for David and for us. It's even more complete um, this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only is God's word perfect, go back to verse 7. The testimony of the Lord is what? Sure or trustworthy. So God's testimony, his own personal testimony is verified. It won't lead you astray. Notice here, if it's the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, trusting scripture is personal interaction with God. If it's God's personal testimony and you trust the testimony, you're actually trusting who? God. And if you're not trusting the Bible, you're actually not trusting who? God. In other words, you can't separate the book from the author. You can't say, well, it's just a book. Well, if you disregard the book, you disregard God because it's his personal testimony. You can't make the Bible impersonal and read the Bible rightly. It's always a personal interaction with God when you come to God's word, for good or for ill. It either softens you or hardens you, but you interact with God every time someone reads scripture out loud because he is speaking. Not only is it perfect and trustworthy, let's move on to verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are what? Right, correct, That means not just right in terms of accuracy, but even morally, that it it makes the path straight in a sense. It won't lead you astray. Your conscience can rest. You know that when you interact with other people, have you ever had a guilt trip put on you from another person? Have you ever put a guilt trip on another person? Has anyone tried to impose on you a standard to make you feel, you know, guilty? And has that standard ever been off? There's one standard that will never be off. That's always right. That when you know this standard, your conscience can actually rest. And when people contradict this standard, you can dismiss their false standards that they're projecting on you. And that your conscience even projects on yourself. So when it says the precepts of the Lord are right, that means that this can bind our conscience and no other standard can. Every other standard, every other opinion, every other friend you have and church member and pastor who puts their opinion on you must be tested by this because the precepts of the Lord are right. Not PJ's opinions, not your opinions, not the opinions of others, not even your own self-talk. These are morally right and these bind the conscience and it also frees your conscience because now you don't have to worry about what everyone thinks and the standards they put on you. Just go back to the Bible. And think about it biblically. Okay, not only is it right, verse 8, the command of the Lord is what? 
pure. Oh, I'm sorry, that's verse, well, mine says radiant here, but yeah, pure, and then verse 9 also says pure, but radiant here or clear. Some, some might say clear or pure. Um, what this means here, if, you're, if we're thinking along those, the lines of radiant, God's commands, it says here that they make the eyes light up. God's commands are not burdensome, they're enlightening. They are, in one sense, lightening the load on your heart and your life. They don't burden you, they free you. They are clear. For, let me give you one example here. I'm going to jump a little bit ahead here on um, how it makes your eyes light up. When you obey God's word, does it enlighten? Does it show you the right way? And when you disobey God's word, does it darken everything around you? It does, doesn't it? Let me give you one example from my devotions this past week. Turn to 2 Samuel 13. Or keep your finger, if you want to, or you could just listen. 2 Samuel 13. Does, does the Bible really light up your eyes? 2 Samuel 13. Now, before I have you read, I'm going to read verse 21. But before, let me just set up the story here. So, in 1 Samuel 13, David, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel, thank you. 2 Samuel 13, David's son, his second son, rapes his daughter, who's his half-sister. Different mom, same dad. Okay? He rapes, the, the son rapes his sister, half-sister, and um, even as he's about to um, violate her, she says, um, don't do this. Don't, why don't you just ask the king? You know he won't refuse you. He'll give you whatever you ask. He'll give, you, he'll give me to you in marriage, basically is what she was saying. And then he says no, he refuses that, and then he proceeds. David finds out, and then look at Second Samuel. So wait, I'm sorry, before David finds out, Second Samuel 13, um, Tamar's full brother, Absalom, finds out. He says, wait here, sister, I'll handle this, which he doesn't handle for another two years. But he says, hold on, sister, just stay right here. Then the dad finds out, the king of Israel. And what does he do? Look at Second Samuel 13, 21. Look at what David does here. When King David heard about all these things, he was what? Furious. furious. Is, is that good? Is it good to be furious or bad to be furious here? It's good, right? Righteous anger. And then it says, Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. Then verse 23 says, two years later, so in other words, two years later, passing the story continues. So what was David's reaction? What was David's full reaction? He was what? Furious. What else did he do? Nothing else. That's all he did. So did he keep God's word? Well, in my devotions this week, I'm reading through Leviticus. So look at Leviticus 20, or just listen to it. Leviticus 20, verse 17. So I'm doing my devotions in Leviticus this week, which made me go to that story later. Because in Leviticus 20, verse 17, it says... Um, if a man marries his sister, whether his father's daughter, which is what um, Tamar was to, Absalom, um, to Amnon, whether his father's daughter or his mother's daughter, and they have sexual relations, it is a what? Disgrace. They are to be what? What are they to be? No, does it say stone in yours? No, what does it say? They are to be what? Cut off publicly from their people. He has, set, he has had sexual intercourse with his sister. He will bear his iniquity. 
So the, the, is the Bible clear on what to do? First of all, why Tamar would say that dad would give, you, give me to you doesn't make sense according to Leviticus 20.17, right? Which just makes me think, why would she say that? Like, is David just not keeping scripture? Or does she misunderstand her dad? Well, clearly David's not applying this verse because when it happens, what was his reaction? He was what? Furious. And what else did he do? Nothing. What is he supposed to do? What is Israel supposed to do? Cut him off. This is excommunication from the people of Israel. But David does nothing. He disobeys God's word. But wouldn't that enlighten his eyes? Wouldn't that lighten the path of what to do next? And isn't that a good command? I mean, because what happened when David didn't do it? What was the result? Two years later, Absalom kills his brother, murders his brother because his dad didn't do it. So there was injustice. There was rape. There was passivity. There was disobedience to God's law. And so... And then, yeah, so then there was murder. And then eventually, after that, Absalom is banished. So Absalom's the one banished. Who's supposed to be banished? Amnon was supposed to be banished, right? Amnon's not banished. Absalom is banished for murdering his brother, which I'm not saying that's wrong to do in that regard, but the brother was supposed to be banished earlier. Absalom is banished. Eventually, he's invited back. And what does he do? He leads the country into a civil war, right? And hundreds of Israelites die, all because David did not obey Leviticus 20:17. But if he would have obeyed it, 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 it lights the path, it enlightens your eyes on how to handle situations in your life. The Bible shows you the path. Amen. It gives light to your eyes. And when you darken your eyes and you say, well, this doesn't apply to me. This verse doesn't apply here to this church. You do things like that. You darken your life. And you darken the path and you darken your eyes. And your heart gets numb and insensitive to God's word. So... The point here, back to Psalm 19, the command of the Lord is right. When God commands you to cut somebody off, you do it. Not because you're mad, not because you're angry, not because you're self-righteous and arrogant, but because God's word is radiant and it makes the eyes light up. All right, move on, moving on here. Another description. We have four more descriptions here of the word. It's radiant. Um, verse 9, the, the fear of the Lord is pure and uh, Psalm 12, 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in an earthen furnace, purified seven times. There is no abnormality in God's word at all. It's completely pure. Not only that, verse 9, the, um, the ordinance of the, of the Lord are reliable. That means it's true. It's the truth. It's dependable. Look at the next verse here. Um, I'm sorry, um, here in verse 9. They are enduring forever, so they're eternal. God's word is enduring. It won't fade like everything else in this world fades. And then in verse 9, the ordinances of the Lord are reliable and they are altogether what? Righteous. So they are right again. They uphold the glory of God. And therefore, if, if everything in the Bible upholds God's glory, that's what righteousness is, the unswerving allegiance to the glory of God, if everything in here upholds God's glory, then everything in here not only upholds God's glory, but is good for your neighbors and is good for everyone around you. Amen. There is never a time that disobeying scripture is good for anyone. Never. That's the, that's the, that's the age-old lie of, of Satan, is that Scripture doesn't apply here, or it's not as good for this situation. There's always an excuse, and those excuses are always wrong, because God's Word is altogether righteous. It's always the best course of action to obey Scripture, always, without exception. All right, so if you're not a Christian, you might be sitting here, and you're saying, okay, PJ, great, I get it, the Bible is the main book for the Christians, but I don't really trust the Bible. 
It seems unreliable. I mean, aren't there a lot of fairy tales in the Bible? People rising from the dead? I mean, that God actually speaks? That there's no errors in a Bible? Is that possible to have no errors in a book? I mean, think about modern science and sociology and history and culture. I mean, look at some of these verses in Leviticus. So it's so outdated. Are you seriously saying that all of this is, is God's word and I'm just supposed to believe it? Can we be sure about these things? Well, there's a lot of ways of answering this question. Let me just briefly address it here. Let me say two things since we're here in the Old Testament. First of all, understanding the Old Testament commands, we, we, all of this is God's word, and yet it doesn't all apply equally. Because the Bible is also written across time in a story. You have to know the timeline as you read the Bible. So, for example, if I have an ordinance in my home, the kids are... So, here's my son, Rock. If I say, Rock must be in bed by 9 o'clock p.m. Now, biblically, he's a child under my authority. Must he obey that? Yes or no? Yes. You hear that, Rock? I'm just kidding. No, he's fine. No. Yeah, yes. Yes, he must obey that. So, Rock must be in bed by 9 o'clock p.m. Now... Let's say he's 27 years old, he's married, he has a kid. Must he be in bed by 9 o'clock p.m.? But, but didn't you say he had to be? Isn't that, didn't God say he had to be in bed by 9 o'clock p.m.? You just said no, you just contradicted yourself. Well, no, there's a story to his life. He's not a child anymore. He's a grown man. He's married. He has his own kids. He can set his own bedtime. So in the same way, the Old Testament law... The Old Testament law was given, it says in Galatians, as a guide until the fullness of time came. And now that Christ has come, it doesn't mean it was wrong. It just was for that time period. Okay? So for those who say, you know, I don't, you, you Christians just play fast and loose with the Bible. You don't really believe all that stuff because don't you eat king crab legs? I, oh, king crab legs would have been on my list. But that's not really at a restaurant. But um, you can't eat that. That's against Leviticus. Well, not if you understand the Bible completely. Amen? I say amen to that. Um, so, so, so praise God. But, but the, the point here is that, that the Bible, we, we, if you say you play fast and loose with, with the text, we're saying as Christians, you're right to ask that question. But we would just ask you to think a little bit more carefully about that objection before you continue with it. A second thing people might say is it's so outdated. The, um, the culture of it and the, the principles of it is just so wrong to our culture today. Do you realize that 100 years from now, your great-grandkids will be saying, saying the same thing about our culture today? And 200 years from now, they'll say the same thing? And do you realize that even right now today, 2018, in other countries, they completely disagree with our culture on many things? And they look at us sideways, and we look at them sideways, and it could completely switch later on? In other words, if you're going to use culture today as your standard for truth, you're just like a leaf in the wind that's going to be blown everywhere because it changes. So when we talk about the Bible as right and morally right and stable, we mean that, that everything else is, is sifting sand. So if you're not a Christian, we just encourage you to at least read the Bible and, and think about it. So how do we know the Bible is the word of God? The Baptist Catechism says, hopefully our kids in our church memorize the Baptist Catechism. I encourage you parents to catechize your children. But um, one of our questions in our Baptist Catechism is, how do we know the Bible is God's word? And the answer is, the Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and edify saints. But only the Spirit of God can make us willing to agree and submit to the Bible as the word of God. So, but I want to point out something from that definition I just gave you. How do we know the Bible is the word of God? It's power to convert sinners and edify saints. 
It's what the word of God does. And that's our second point. So desire God's word for what it is. But secondly, desire God's word for what it does. And what does it do? We have six things it does here in Matthew, in, I'm sorry, in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 9. Six things it does. Look at, let's go quickly through these. Verse 7. The instruction of Yahweh is perfect. What does it do? Renewing one's life. It renews your life. Now, that could have two senses. It could be reviving the soul, that you are dead and the scriptures make you alive. Or it could have you going as a Christian, fading and wandering in your spiritual life and, and really declining in your growth. And then you read scripture and it renews your soul. It revives your soul personally. So it could be salvation or it could be renewal of your faith in Christ. But both of those are tied to repentance. So scripture renews and revives your life by giving you God's word and through it granting you repentance. Secondly, not only does it revive the soul, uh, secondly here, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. What does it do in verse 7? It makes what? It makes the simple or makes the inexperienced what? Wise. Does anyone here want to grow in wisdom? It's the whole message of Proverbs. The Bible makes you wise when you are experienced. Now wise here means, in some ways, it could, it, could mean, it could have the idea of being closed-minded. In our culture, we put a premium on being open-minded. Is that right or wrong? Uh, it just depends, I guess. But yeah, it's wrong, generally. And here's why. You could never be open-minded to everything all at once. So if I say you need to be open-minded, then what I'm saying is you need to be closed-minded about being closed-minded. Right? Or, so in other words, if you need to always be open-minded, can you be open-minded to close-mindedness? You can't, like, in other words, you have to be closed-minded to something to be open-minded to something else. So the difference is not open-minded versus closed-mindedness. The, the difference is what are you open-minded to and what are you closed-minded to? And the wise person knows what to be closed-minded to and what to be open-minded to. What the Bible tells us, we are closed-minded to. I am closed-minded to, to the possibility that Jesus is not God. I'm just not open to that idea. You could suggest it to me. I'll listen to you. I'll have a conversation with you. I'll consider what you say. But there's no real open-mindedness in my heart or soul to that idea. I have closed my mind to that because I am inexperienced and unwise, and the scriptures make us wise. Amen. So if your mind is open, as one pastor has said, shut it. Now, shut it to the right things. It makes the wise, it makes wise the simple-minded, the open-minded. All right, not only that, let's go on. What else does scripture do in verse eight? The precepts of the Lord are right. It makes the heart glad. What gives you true deep-seated joy and gladness even in your sorrow? Who makes your heart glad? God does. No, everybody wants gladness. And the Bible's telling you, desire scripture. It'll make you happier than, the, than all you can eat restaurants. Desire scripture. It'll make you happier than having $10 million. It really will. It's true. It does make the heart glad in ways that money and food cannot. Uh, fourthly here, it makes the eyes light up in verse 8. We already talked about lighting up your eyes. When you obey scripture, it leads the path to seeing your way through trials. There was one parent I've pastored in the past who was bereaved of a child. And she said, in the, in the most heart-wrenching of moments of grief, she said, God is good. God is in control. God is good in lending our child to us for these years. How can she say that? I mean, you just lost your child. How can you say that? 
Well, she can say that because of things like what John Lee preached last Sunday, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. You did preach that text last Sunday, right? About um, keeping your eyes on the invisible, not the visible, the eternal, not the temporary. When you obey God's word, the command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up, and you're saying, I have no idea what to do. I just lost my child, but I'm going to obey scripture. I'm going to say true things, and I'm going to, in the midst of my heart being ripped out of me, I'm going to thank God because God says to be thankful, even though this hurts like crazy. When you obey, your eyes light up, and the path forward is made clearer. So, thanking God in your trials before you know the way out of your trials is the light-shedding command for finding joy in Christ in your trials. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to thank God after the trial. But let's just be honest, that's easy, easier, because it's done. But to thank God in the trial before it's done and before you know the way out, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I'm not saying that makes your trial go away, but I'll tell you this, it will light your eyes up. It will shed light on your next step, even if you can't see the next two steps. It will shed light on your next step. So go to scripture for that. And praise God, he doesn't leave us blind and in the dark, but he gives us commands. In those times, we don't just need encouragement, we need commands. Okay, fifthly, in verse nine, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring for, or I'm sorry, we're going to verse 11 now. What else does the Bible do? Two more from verse 11. In addition, your servant is, what, are, what does the scripture do to us? It warns us, right? Your servant is warned by them. The Bible warns you. We don't near, merely need encouragement. We don't merely need rebuke or um, commands. We need warnings. We need God to get in our face. We need the Bible. We need Christians to get in our face with the Bible and say, if you do this, you will be destroyed. If you do this, you will regret it. If you do this, you will cause damage to those around you. One of the things we teach our kids regularly is sin hurts. You might not know it, but it does. You might not feel it immediately, but it does. It always hurts. Everyone around you even if you don't feel it. And so we need warnings from God's word. So praise God so that our servant, God's servant, us, we servants are warned by scripture. Scripture warns you. And then sixthly, in verse 11, in keeping scripture, there is what? An abundant reward. It shows you the path for reward. It warns you of the disaster ahead and it shows you the path to the reward ahead. We always choose reward. We always choose the reward we think is most abundant. The problem is we don't always think correctly, right? And so the Bible gives us the correct thoughts on what is the most abundant reward because the most abundant reward is always centered on God himself. All right, so desire God's word for what it is. It's God's word, and it's radiant and clear and pure and righteous and perfect and trustworthy. And then um, desire God's word for what it does. It renews your life. It makes you wise when you're inexperienced. It closes your mind. It makes your heart glad. It lights up your eyes. It warns you from disaster. It shows you the path towards reward. And lastly, desire God's word, not only for what it does, but lastly, desire God's word for how it changes your prayers. Look at David's prayer based on God's word. His prayer is prayer about fighting sin in his life. When you read scripture, it changes you from just praying merely about external things to killing sin in your own soul. So verse 12 says, who perceives his unintentional sins? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. So he prays a prayer here for, um, God, I have sins that I'm not even aware of. I'm doing sins I'm, unintending, I'm not intentionally doing. Show me them. Cleanse me from them. Deliver me 
from them. And then in verse 13, that's a prayer for cleansing from hidden faults. And by the way, hidden there, um, Derek Kidner writes again, verse 12 recognizes that a fault may be hidden, not because it's too small to see. It's not because your sin is small. It's hidden because it's too characteristic to register. It's just too much a part of your life. It's so habitual in your life and character, that's why you can't see it. It's not a small sin necessarily. It's just you do it all the time. That you are insensitive to the sin. So the prayer, show me my hidden faults. Who perceives it? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. And then um, there's a prayer here for deliverance in verse 13. Keep, moreover, keep your servant, not just from unintentional sins, but from what kind of sins here in verse 13? Willful sins, don't let them rule me. Because if you keep me from hidden faults, if you cleanse me from hidden faults, and you keep me from willful sins, then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Brothers and sisters, um, I was going to say this next week in my Proverbs sermon. I'll say it. You'll hear a little bit more about it. But um, one of my favorite pastor theologians just recently um, made shipwreck of his pastoral ministry, committing adultery um, with two different, on two different occasions. Um, the news came out this past week. Uh, on Monday is when I found out. And it's sent me reeling. Um, it's such a gifted preacher, powerful preacher. Francis and I listened to one of the podcast interviews of him where he was talking about his devotional life and how you need to repent every time you sin because if you don't, he's like, even when I read my Bible, I'll call my wife at home and ask her for forgiveness for being impatient with her because it would, you know, if I don't do that, my heart's not gonna be... He just did that interview like last year. And the, so as he's doing that interview... He's, adult, he's an adult, he's adulterating himself and his marriage. And it freaked me out because I'm a pastor who preaches all the time and I talk about repentance all the time. And he's talking about it and I'm preaching about it. And you could preach about it and not do it. It's possible. And you could assume I do it because I might even say it passionately. But that doesn't mean I'm doing it necessarily. It didn't mean he was doing it. And so um, when I see this prayer, this prayer feels a lot more um, necessary for me and for us, that we honestly ask God to cleanse us from hidden faults. And we don't make peace with sin. We don't get used to teaching without repenting, fully, thoroughly, actually repenting. Because it says here, if they rule over you, or, um, then I will be blameless and cleansed from blatant rebellion. Well, if you don't, then you won't be blameless and you won't be cleansed from blatant rebellion and you'll make shipwreck of your ministry your gospelizing ministry, not even as a pastor. Let me read a story that seems so out of step with our culture from Numbers. Numbers 15, 27 to 36. You could turn there if you want, but it starts with a principle and obeying scripture and then it turns into a story that just seems so out of step with our culture from Numbers 15, 27 to 36. Here, here this. Numbers 15, 27 says this. If one person sins unintentionally, he is to present a year-old male, female goat as a sin offering. The priest will then make atonement before the Lord on behalf of the person who acts in error, sinning unintentionally. And when he makes atonement for him, he will be forgiven. So do we need forgiveness from unintentional sins? Is it enough to just say, I didn't know? That's, that's not an, that, that doesn't forgive you. That doesn't excuse you. Verse 29, you are to have the same law for the person who acts in error, whether he is an Israelite or an alien who resides among you. But the person who acts defiantly, here's willful sin now. The person who acts defiantly, whether native or resident alien, blasphemes the Lord. That person is to be cut off from his people. 
He will certainly be cut off because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his command. His guilt remains on him. Okay, so if you sin willfully, defiantly, you're to be cut off. Then it tells a story, verse 32. While the Israelites were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Gathering wood, not a big deal, right? But when was he doing it? On the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community. They placed him in custody because it had not been decided what should be done to him. Then the Lord told Moses, the man is to be put to death. The entire community is to stone him outside the camp. So the entire community brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. For picking up wood on the Sabbath, That seems like such a small deal to us, perhaps. That's not a commentary on Scripture being out of step. That's a commentary on our hearts being out of step with the holiness of God. That's how comfortable and frequent our rebellion is. That we are shocked that God would hold someone accountable for defying him. Now, keep in mind that these Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for years, 40 years. If you're not picking up wood for 20 years and all of a sudden one day you decide, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. I'm going to do it today, after 10 years of not doing it, 20 years of not doing it. So it's not like you didn't know. No one's ever picked up wood on the Sabbath. And then one day, 10 years in, you're like, that can't be that big of a deal, right? It's just picking up wood. And so you do that. That's defiance. You've never done it for 10, 20 years of your life. No one around you has done it, and you decide to do it, and you think it's not a big deal? To disobey the living God? The word of the Lord keeps us from unintentional sins and hardening us to defying him. There are consequences for sin. This is, and so the prayer in verse 14, may the words of my mouth, back to Psalm 19, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the prayer is for cleansing. The prayer is for deliverance from from willful sins and a prayer for holiness. And then this third prayer is a prayer to please God with all your thoughts and all your words. Why? Because this is the word of who? God, the word of Yahweh. What is the word? Who is Yahweh? Yahweh is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who promised blessing to cursed sinners through Abraham's seed. Amen. And who's the one teaching Psalm 19? Who wrote Psalm 19? David. David. Who is David? He's from the tribe of Judah. And so there was a king who was going to come from the tribe of Judah, a Messiah who was going to redeem people and bring in Abraham's promise. Now, was David that Messiah to fulfill all the promises? No, but he was given the promise, and his descendant Jesus was. And so Yahweh will bless people through the Messiah king, David's son, Jesus. But get this, the word of Yahweh would promise a Messiah king, but what we learn in John 1 is that the word of Yahweh becomes the king. It's not just the word in scripture. The word actually becomes human. Jesus is God, the word becoming flesh. And now through his life, death, and resurrection, now he teaches us Psalm 19 and he teaches us scripture. And now through his life and death and resurrection, we can be saved. So you could read Psalm 19 and you could say, 
Jesus is perfect, renewing one's life. Jesus is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. Jesus is right, making the heart glad. Jesus is radiant, making the eyes light up. Jesus is pure, enduring forever. Jesus is reliable and altogether righteous. Jesus is more desirable than gold, than an abundance of gold, sweeter than honey, and the dripping of the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by Jesus, and in keeping to Jesus, there is abundant reward. Because the word points to Jesus, indeed the word is not the not scriptures Jesus, but the word of God, word of Yahweh, is Jesus. He became flesh. And so if you're not a Christian here, I have really good news for you this morning. The best news you'll ever hear. God forgives sinners. He has told us in his trustworthy word. He has told us that we are made in his image to enjoy him, and yet we have rebelled against him in our, in our sin. And because we have sinned and rebelled against him, we deserve damnation, condemnation in hell forever. And yet Jesus came, the word became flesh, and dwelt among us. And after living among us, he dies on the cross for our sins, even though he never sinned. And he took on the penalty of sin. He took on the condemnation. And in it, he defeated Satan's sin and death. He was raised from the the grave on the third day, so that if you repent from your sins, and repent from your righteousness and your goodness, and trust in Jesus, you will be saved. And that's good news. God wants to save you. God is inviting you this morning to to, to come to him, to have forgiveness and life. Christian brother, Christian sister, Bethany Baptist Church member, how how will you read God's word this week? How will you desire God's word? How will you set up and a plan to meditate, to hear from God's word daily? Blessed is the one who meditates on God's word day and night. Do you have a reading plan? Or maybe as I pull out my smartphone here, a listening plan? Do you have a memorizing plan? A plan of how you will maximize learning scripture from other Christians, other church members? Brothers and sisters, share what God has told you to others. Write it down somewhere. Trust God and obey scripture detailed obedience. Bethany Baptist Church as a family, let us ask one another the simple question with expectation of being edified. Don't ask this question to judge each other. Or embarrass each other? Ask this question to be edified. So here's the question I want you to ask each other. What have you been learning from God's word lately? Can we make that a regular question we ask in this church from each other? Not to judge each other and make each other feel guilty, but can we just edify and have an expectation in this church that God's word is more desirable than gold and that we're reading it? So let's ask each other that question. Men at tomorrow, men's morning breakfast, you're all invited if you're men. I guess women are invited too, um, to our men's breakfast. But... um. No, I, the men are saying no, okay. Men's breakfast tomorrow, when we do our men's breakfast at Chick-fil-A. Um, let's ask each other that question. What have you been learning from God's word lately? Hear God's word being preached. Prepare your heart as a church. Let's, let's hear God's word and learn from it. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to read the Bible. Maybe you could start with the Gospel of Mark. Or even better, read the Gospel of Mark with a, with a Christian and ask him all the hardest questions you can think of. That will do good for you. Children, I see children here. Children, read your Bible. You guys don't have school, right? No summer school for you guys? I hope. You guys have a little bit of summer school. But you guys are reading a lot of books this summer. Some of my kids are at least. But I haven't, I thought about this last night, so here's my challenge to the kids. Read one gospel account this summer. The whole thing. Gospel of Mark, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of John, Gospel of, what's the other one? Luke. The Gospel of Luke. Read, read a gospel account all the way through, children. You can read. 
Read the Bible or have your parents read you the whole story of Jesus from beginning to middle to end of his life here before he went up to heaven and continue the story from heaven. But, but read that. Ask your parents to read it to you this summer. Children, finish a whole book of the Bible in the next month. Parents, spouses, roommates, use actual Bible verses when, con- when correcting each other. Whenever a Bible verse comes into your mind to a conversation, use it. Quote it. Get it regularly on your tongue. And if you're discouraged... PJ, I just don't feel like reading my Bible. I'm disc- I, I don't pray regularly. I'm so inconsistent. I don't know what to do. I mean, I read David and he sounds like an alien here. It's more desirable than money and, and food. That just doesn't, that doesn't seem real. If you're discouraged, I want to say to you, brother or sister, don't worry about the next seven days. Just get close to God today. Take it one day at a time. Just read the Bible today a little bit. Something is better than nothing. Ask God for help. And then ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you or to hold you accountable or to read the same passage with you so that you guys could talk about it. That's actually the best thing to do. The best, one of the best ways to use your church family is I'm going to read Leviticus 23 this week. So I'll tell Lance, I'm reading it. Read it too and maybe next week we we'll talk about it. Just maybe one thing we learned. Or I'm having trouble reading my Bible. Lance, I'm reading Leviticus 23. Ask me next Sunday when you see me. What did I learn from Leviticus 23? Just do something small, but learn to talk about it. And let's be a church that, that craves God's word. Okay, to, so to summarize, let's desire God's word because of what it is, what it does, and how it changes our prayers. My call to you is to read God's word this week. If you don't, if you don't desire God's word and read it, you will grow in foolishness while thinking you're wise. You will find cheap happiness or despair in empty and fleeting pleasures. And you'll be dominated and maybe eventually destroyed by your sin. But if you read your Bible and you take it to heart by God's spirit and power, you'll grow in wisdom and knowing God. God will make your heart glad in Jesus and you'll be transformed more and more in killing sin and killing hypocrisy. So I ask you again, would you choose $10 million and free restaurants for the next six months along with growing in foolishness and cheap happiness and being dominated and maybe destroyed by sin? Or will you choose to read God's word and remember some of it as God is gracious. May the Lord change us and incline our hearts to his testimony rather than material gain.